It's May, 2014. A spring day, though the weather in Berlin is gloomy. Art detective Arthur Brand hurries towards a vast red brick building in the northwest of the city. Built at the beginning of the 20th century, the distinctive structure is the former German weapons and munitions factory, which played a key role in arming Germany before and during the First World War. These days, it has a more peaceful function. This is Berlin's state archive, home to a huge amount of documents relating to the Nazi regime. Arthur follows a sign to the reading room. Arthur's work means he spends a lot of time in rooms like this, digging up information other people don't even know exists. This is deep research. The things you can discover in National Archives aren't available on the internet. For three months, Arthur's been on the trail of two monumental bronze horses, which once stood outside Hitler's Reich Chancellery. Apparently, these works by sculptor Josef Torak have gone up for sale within the seedy Nazi memorabilia black market. At first, he believed that they must be forgeries. Like everyone, he assumed the originals must have been destroyed during the Battle of Berlin. But he recently discovered that they might be genuine after all. Today, he's here to find evidence to confirm his suspicion. It'll take hours to comb through these archives, but Arthur's willing to put in the legwork for his case. You see, it's not just about finding the horses. It's about stopping the funds from their sale falling into Nazi hands. Arthur's uncovered evidence, suggesting that Hitler had the statues taken to another location almost a month before the Battle of Berlin began. Given the size of these sculptures and everything else that was going on, Arthur doesn't think they can have gone far. Whatever else it was, Nazi Germany was a bureaucracy, and at times, a ruthlessly efficient one. Arthur's theory is that the task of removing the statues would have fallen to some committee or other, and a paper trail would have been kept of the transportation. Under the not-so-watchful eye of the snoozing archivist, Arthur consults a thick file relating to a committee set up in 1943 to oversee the reconstruction of German cities damaged by Allied bombing. The documents are written in a near-indecipherable Gothic script. The subject matter is mostly technical and tedious. Arthur scans the various minutes and reports looking for a mention of Torak's name. Arthur feels his eyelids grow heavy. He switches his attention to the photographs inserted into the dossier. Most show the same group of male architects assembled in one setting or another for their committee meetings, balding non-entities who have made their careers serving a murderous regime. The last photograph shows them sitting down to a banquet. The image is slightly overexposed, but Arthur can clearly see the front leg of a gigantic horse rearing up in the background. 
the position of the leg is unmistakable. It's one of Torak's horses. Here's the proof he's been looking for. Proof that the horses were moved out of Berlin intact. The photograph was taken in Vriesen, about 70 kilometers northeast of Berlin. From his research into the art of the Nazi era, Arthur knows that Reason was the location of Arno Brecke's studio. Brecke was one of the sculptors admired by Hitler. He was the creator of The Party and The Army, two other monumental sculptures installed in the Reich Chancellery. Is it possible that these works were also removed from Berlin before the Russians destroyed them? Certainly, Brecke's studio would have been large enough to house the rescued horses. But if they had still been there after the war, then surely the world would have known about it. One possibility is that the Russian soldiers who swept through East Germany found the sculptures and secretly carried them off. Anything that was done by the Red Army in East Germany at the end of the war must have been done with the knowledge of the KGB or even at their instigation. Which means, ex-KGB officers may be involved in the sale of the horses. Arthur shifts uncomfortably in his seat. The thought of dealing with neo-Nazis was bad enough. Throw in the KGB for good measure, and you've suddenly got a toxic mix. If the KGB were involved, then their successors, the modern-day FSB, will not want that information getting out. Arthur knows what the FSB is capable of. The poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko in London in 2006, allegedly by the FSB, was headline news all over the world. Arthur needs proof of what he's discovered to show his partners but it's forbidden to take any of the documents out of the National Archive or to make copies without permission. He checks and the archivist isn't looking. Then takes a shot of the image with his digital camera. At that moment, the archivist wakes and approaches Arthur's desk. The man looms over him, frowning, just as Arthur slips his forbidden camera back into his bag. In all the years I've lived here, begins the archivist. Arthur's convinced he's all set to lay into him for taking the photograph. Is he about to get himself banned from the archive? Maybe the guy will just insist on confiscating his camera. But no, it seems he didn't even notice the camera. The archivist continues. The files you're looking at now have only been requested a few times before always by the same man. Arthur's intrigued. Perhaps whoever looked at these documents before him knows what happened to Torak's horses. The archivist tells Arthur that the man had been part of a group of dissident artists active in East Germany during the communist era. I could give you his address, suggests the archivist. Arthur smiles. 
His deep research has paid double dividends. A photograph showing Torax horses in a different location and a link to a man who might know where they are. Perhaps he's been lucky. But like all the best detectives, Arthur Brand has a talent for creating his own luck. My name is Mark Dodson from Noiser. This is part two of the Nazi art mystery. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Before Arthur can follow up the lead given to him by the archivist, he takes a call from Alex, one of his partners. It seems Alex has a dramatic new lead of his own, one that proves the Russian connection. Alex has just gotten back from a trip to Moscow, where he was speaking to contacts in the Russian military. It's just one of the things that makes Alex such a valuable member of the team, his Rolodex. While he was there, he met a 90-year-old veteran who told him about special units of Russian soldiers called trophy brigades, set up to steal valuable artworks in Germany after Hitler's defeat. According to Alex's source, one of these units raided Brecca's studio in Vriesen, there, they found Torax striding horses. Arthur is stunned. This confirms the photo he found in the archives. The soldiers in the unit were ordered to transport the sculptures to a small town called Eberswalder, then home of a Red Army barracks. Arthur and Alex meet up in Berlin and head to Eberswalder to follow up on the lead. There, they speak to a man who was mayor of the town in 1989. Because of his official role, he was responsible for liaising with the Russians and was in a good position to see what went on at the base. Alex shows the former mayor some photos he brought back from Russia. One is of a Russian soldier posing in front of the horses. The ex-mayor confirms that the horses used to be in Eberswalder, together with other monumental sculptures. Alex flicks through some more photos, showing works by Arno Brecca and Fritz Klemsch. The ex-mayor picks out four other sculptures that he says were once in Eberswalder. Interestingly, he's under the impression that all these sculptures were examples of communist art commissioned by Stalin. Arthur and his partner encourage him in his mistaken belief. They don't want it to get out that there are people looking for Nazi artworks, especially not Torax striding horses. If the sellers find out that a couple of art detectives are on their trail, the horses might once again disappear without a trace. Arthur asks the former mayor if he knows what happened to the sculptures when the Russians left in 1994. I do indeed, he replies. When the Russian city commandant came to take leave of me as mayor, he told me the sculptures had been broken up and sold as scrap in 1989. The Russians used the proceeds to help poor children in Armenia who had been left homeless after an earthquake. 
It's a touching story of international communism at its best. If it's true, it's the end of any hopes Arthur has of finding the original horses. It also means the ones being offered for sale must be forgeries after all. Thing is, Arthur and Alex, they don't believe a word of it. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. On the way back from Eberswalde, Alex tells Arthur more about what he learned on his trip to Russia. The reason the ex-mayor believes the statues were communist art was because that's what the Russians told him. They even painted them gold, turning fascist propaganda into communist bling. Of course, the Russians themselves knew what the statues really were and their true value. That's why the story of them being sold for scrap is so implausible. Then Alex tells Arthur something else he heard from his sources in Russia. In 1986, the secret of the horse's location nearly got out. An East German artist by the name of Frank Lanzendorfer was traveling around the German Democratic Republic on a moped. It seems Lanzendorfer stumbled on the artworks at Eberswalder. Being an artist, he knew straight away what they were and filmed them on his Super 8 camera. If Lanzendorfer's film had ever got out, it would have caused a major scandal. But as Alex explains, only a handful of people saw what the artist had shot. The idea was to use this footage as part of a longer art film. In the May and June of 1987, he gave little previews at private showings. Arthur has only one question. Does this footage still exist? No idea is Alex's honest but disappointing answer. Arthur knows that this film could be the conclusive evidence he's looking for. If Arthur can get hold of it, they'll be one step closer to the horses and the neo-Nazis who are selling them. The question is, where is it? Where would you look? Remember the archivist Arthur spoke with at the State Archives? Remember what he told Arthur? That only one other person had ever consulted the file Arthur was looking at. Hadn't he described the man as a dissident artist active in East Germany in the 1980s? Could it have been Lanzendorfer? Even if it isn't, it's certainly possible 
that this artist knew Lanzendorfa, and likely they moved in the same circles. Could it be that he was one of the very few people who had seen Lanzendorfer's film? It's time to find out. When Arthur calls the artist, he's wary, but agrees to meet in a cafe in the Prinzlauerberg district of Berlin. The cafe is a dimly lit but cozy establishment, favored by locals rather than tourists. The man introduces himself as Hans and orders two large tankards of lager. Hans isn't exactly what Arthur's expecting. For some reason, the words dissident artist had conjured up someone more punk in appearance. You know, all facial piercings and tattoos. Instead, Hans is a middle-aged man dressed in a sober polo neck with neatly trimmed silver hair and stubble. Arthur comes straight out with it and asks if he knows Frank Lanzendorfer, the artist who filmed the horses in Eberswalder. Hans answers that, yes, he knew him. Arthur picks up on the past tense. Knew. Hans nods slowly. Sad to say, Lanzendorfer is dead. He explains, on the 5th of August, 1988, he climbed to the top of a fire lookout tower and jumped to his death. Suicide, officially. But we, his friends, call it murder. The Stasi made his life so unbearable that he had no alternative. Was Lanzendorfer hounded into taking his own life because he knew about the horses? It's an intriguing thought. But Arthur realizes the truth is probably much simpler. Lanzendorfer was an artist with an alternative lifestyle. In the Stasi's eyes, this made him a subversive. People like Lanzendorfer had no place in the German Democratic Republic. They couldn't be allowed to exist. Arthur learns that Lanzendorfer edited together the footage he shot in Eberswalder into a film which he showed privately. He must have known how explosive the material was. Fascist art stored at a Red Army base it was not the kind of thing the communist authorities wanted to broadcast. As part of their ongoing persecution of Lanzendorfer, the Stasi repeatedly raided his home. On one of those raids, they confiscated all copies of the film. It doesn't necessarily mean they knew what was on those tapes, just that they were determined to destroy his art and break his spirit. Arthur experiences a familiar sinking feeling. Once again, it seems that a promising lead has come to nothing. But his disappointment is short-lived. Hans tells him that he has a bootleg copy of the film which was made at one of the screenings. It seems Lanzendorfer wasn't the only one to understand the significance of what he had recorded. Hans invites Arthur back to his apartment to view it. He takes Arthur to a rundown building scheduled for demolition. There's a smell of mold inside his apartment and the floor is covered with litter. 
Han searches through the mess to find what he's looking for. An old VHS cassette with the letters FL written on the outside. He slots it into an antiquated video player. The film is crudely shot. The soundtrack, disconcerting. Edgy, punk rock with classical music. Ten minutes in, Arthur recognizes the sports ground in Abersvalder. Only there's one important difference between the scenes that he's watching on the screen now and what he saw when he was there with Alex. In Lonsendorfer's grainy video, a series of monumental statues come into view. First, a gigantic male nude. Arthur recognizes it as the prophet by Arno Brecca. Behind it, Arthur can see a female nude by Klemsch. The camera follows Lonsendorfer as he steps in front of a pair of colossal horses. The horses have been painted gold, but there's no mistaking what they are. Yosef Torax striding horses. Here, at last, is the conclusive proof Arthur's been looking for. The lost sculptures really did survive the war. They weren't destroyed in the Battle of Berlin as everyone had believed. Arthur's followed the trail and tracked down the evidence to prove his hunch. Before, he suspected he was onto something big. Now, he knows it. Arthur is now certain that the horses being offered for sale are genuine. He decides it's time to contact the middleman in the transaction. Stephen, the Dutch art dealer living in Antwerp. Arthur puts in a call. He has to be careful. He doesn't want to scare Stephen off. So he makes up a cover story, telling Stephen that he's representing a rich American who's interested in purchasing items that are unique, objects that come with a great story. He deliberately doesn't mention Torak or Hitler or the striding horses. He wants Stephen to think that it was his idea to offer Arthur's fictional buyer the horses. Stephen is cagey. He says he may have something, but doesn't want to reveal what it is. Promising to call Arthur back, he hangs up. Days and weeks go by without a word. Arthur tries to stay calm. He knows from experience. This is often the way it goes with art investigations. They turn into a game of cat and mouse, both sides equally wary of the other. Sometimes a case can drag on for years. The only thing you can do is hold your nerve. Eventually, Arthur's patience pays off. Stephen calls back. He tells Arthur he may have something nice for his rich American client. Stephen goes on. The thing in question is really hush-hush. Any buyer would have to keep it out of the public gaze. Arthur reassures Stephen that his client is a stickler for confidentiality, hinting that he's used to dealing in illegal artworks. Can't afford a scandal, he tells him. Stephen promises to send the details later. 
When Stephen's email comes through, it again stresses the need for secrecy. As I said, this is top secret. If this gets out, you and I will have big problems. And not just with the police. The people who are behind this are capable of anything. Stephen goes on to explain that the sale involves two important sculptures from the Nazi era, which everyone assumed had been destroyed. He claims that the statues had been in the possession of the same family since 1945. To Arthur's amazement, Stephen reveals the identity of the seller. The owners are well known, he writes, a family by the name of Flick, wealthy German industrialists who supported the Nazis during the war. In fact, Friedrich Flick, the founder of the dynasty, was convicted of war crimes at the Nuremberg trials. Flick's business model was based on a number of criminal practices. He seized factories and territories the Nazis had occupied and took over Jewish-owned companies. His most heinous crime was the use of slave labor. According to a 2004 article in The Guardian, he employed between 40,000 and 50,000 prisoners of war and camp inmates, many of whom died. Two of the current generation of flicks are among the world's youngest billionaires. Their family's dark past hasn't dented their personal fortunes. In Stephen's email, he explains that the Flicks have decided to sell everything associated with the Nazi era, including Torax horses. Stephen's not dealing with the Flicks directly, but with another middleman who's acting as their agent. He attaches the same color photograph of the statues, which started Arthur off on his quest. Stephen also reveals the price tag, eight million euros. Things are getting serious now. If the Flick family really are involved, this will be one of the biggest scandals to hit Germany in recent years. However, it's a big if. The agent Stephen is dealing with may have lied about the identity of the sellers to divert attention from the real owners. Given what Arthur discovered in Eberswalder, it certainly looks like someone is lying. He's seen video proof that the artworks were stored at a Russian barracks for decades after the war. So he knows for a fact that these horses have not been in the possession of a single German family the Flicks or anyone, since 1945. Arthur is groping his way through a confusing mist of information and disinformation. There are a few things he's pretty sure of. Number one being, Hitler's horses still exist, but he has no idea where they are or who has them. All he knows is he won't rest until he finds out. Soon after his conversation with Stephen, Arthur is contacted by an investigative journalist called Konstantin von Hammerstein. Von Hammerstein works for Der Spiegel, 
the biggest news magazine in Germany. Arthur decides to take him into his confidence. He has reasons. This is shaping up to be a huge case, possibly too big for Arthur and his team to handle on their own. With Der Spiegel's resources behind them, they can take the investigation as far as it needs to go. Arthur's also covering his own back by bringing von Hammerstein in. The sting they're attempting to pull off, setting up a fake buyer for missing Nazi statues, is extremely risky. One of the risks is that they could be accused of dealing in illicit artworks themselves. The involvement of a respected journalist will strengthen the legitimacy of the investigation if the police start asking questions. When von Hammerstein sees the evidence Arthur has gathered so far, he tells him, if this is genuine, we're talking about the find of the century. He urges Arthur to go to the police, giving him the contact details of René Allange, the German police commissioner for art crimes based in Berlin. Allange has a formidable reputation as a detective. Those who come in contact with him whether colleagues or criminals, know that he'll stop at nothing to uncover the truth. Arthur's happy to bring him in. Arthur travels to Berlin to meet Allange at his office on the top floor of a featureless concrete block opposite the now-abandoned Tempelhof Airport. The two men are about the same age and share a common interest in art, though obsession might be more accurate. They hit it off immediately. As the man in charge of the German police art crime department, Allange has a huge responsibility. Germany has the unenviable reputation of being the world leader in art crime. Allange acknowledges that the nation's troubled past has a lot to do with it. During the Nazi era, the country was essentially a gangster state, with Hitler and Goering leading by example. When the communists took over in East Germany after the war, the spirit of lawlessness continued. Now, you may recall earlier in this investigation, Arthur discovered that Stasi agents set up their own art dealership, Kunsten Antiquitäten, operating out of a Berlin hotel. One of their most profitable lines was selling Nazi memorabilia to Western collectors in return for much-needed hard currency. The legacy of these two regimes is that there's a lot of stolen and forged artwork still out there. Allange shows Arthur boxes of files on the Kunstund Antiquitaten operation. He already knows about Torax horses, though he's convinced they're forgeries. When Arthur shows him proof of the statue's survival, he's amazed. Allange tells Arthur, about a mysterious middleman who in 2013 had tried to sell the horses to a police informant. The middleman described the owner of the horses as a grand master of the Knights Templar. Commenting, clearly a case of reading too much Dan Brown. There seemed to be other people mixed up in the sale too. A man called Wolf and apparently members of one of the wealthiest families in Germany. But then, the trail went cold. The man offering the horses for sale disappeared without a trace. 
The mention of a wealthy German family prompts Arthur to tell Allange about his own lead, linking the sale to the flicks. The color drains from the policeman's face. If this is true, they're going up against some extremely powerful people. People who will go to any lengths to close down their investigation and who have the resources to make life very difficult for them indeed. But Arthur has a plan. Like most of Arthur's plans, it's not without risk. Alange listens as Arthur explains what he has in mind. He wants to draw Stephen out and get him to reveal who his client is. Now here's the risky part. He'll secretly film it going down. Alange can neither approve or reject the plan. Arthur's a private citizen, and he's Dutch. So is Stephen, and presumably the conversation will take place outside German jurisdiction. As a German police officer, Alange can't give any official backing or support. In other words, Arthur's on his own. And if his plan fails, it's all on him. Arthur knows the dangers. He hasn't forgotten what Stephen said in his email. The people who are behind this are capable of anything. Could that anything include killing a troublesome art detective bent on exposing them? It's a distinct possibility but it's not one that's going to stop Arthur. If you want to know the full story behind Arthur Brand's incredible investigation into Josef Torak's missing sculptures, be sure to check out his book, Hitler's Horses. It's filled with loads of first-person detail that we weren't able to cover in this series. Pick it up wherever you get your books. In the next episode of Detectives Don't Sleep, we stay with Arthur Brand as he closes in on the missing horses. Will his plan get results or bring down on his head the wrath of some very powerful and unsavory people? What happens when he confronts the Nazi princess at the heart of the organization he believes will profit from the sale? And who is the mysterious Grand Master? who presides over the Museum of Nazi Art in an ancient castle. Join us as the race to find the missing horses reaches the finish line. And don't miss our special extra episode in which we talk to Arthur Brand himself. Hear the truth about the hunt for Hitler's horses straight from the horse's mouth. <laughs>